And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Race IndyCar podcast Jay Hildebrand back alongside me this week He's had two episodes off, we all know where he's been He's been on the, uh, the publicity tour for John Wick 4, which has recently <laughs> released. And now we've got him back to do his proper uh, his proper job of co-hosting the Race IndyCar podcast. How are you doing, Joe? I'm good, man. I'm great. There's a lot going on at home. You shared on social media that you, you've welcomed uh, a new child into the world. So um, yeah, yeah, we were just discussing that you are sleeping. So that's... Uh, that's uh, I have been getting some sleep. My wife, slightly less so. But we've got... Uh, my wife's a postpartum like mom baby nurse so i feel like our our entire experience has been like total vip uh just from from it'd be like it'd be like going to the indy 500 with me probably like you just kind of know know everybody you know all the nurses you know all the doctors uh all the lactation consultants everything everything there is to know um not to mention having an absolute expert uh running the show um in the household so yeah it's been it's been an awesome, an awesome experience. Little Julietta came on uh, a couple weeks ago, or uh, a week ago, this past Saturday on the twenty fifth, and um, yeah, we're we're super excited. So it's been, uh, it's definitely, definitely a new chapter that we're looking forward to. I wish I had a nurse with me in Texas to look after me after being kicked in the face in a brutal football accident. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't use the word accident because. I'm pretty sure there was malice involved because I'm six foot two. So in order for someone to kick me in the face, take some effort. That's, uh, that's some some gymnastic stuff going on there. So um, yeah, maybe I'll call him out at the end of the podcast and just put him on wax. Let him know I'm coming for him later in the later in the year. That's what podcasts are for. Exactly. Our podcasts are also to talk about brilliant motor races. So let's get into Texas because it was. Absolutely fantastic to watch. I'm really glad I chose uh, this year as my first year to to head to Texas and to this race in particular and get a bit of a taste of a different super speedway to Indy. Um, very, very different style in in many ways, but the the speed is obviously there. The the spectacle is there. Um, yeah, absolutely fantastic experience to to see the cars. I definitely recommend anyone who's not been to Texas before to go and check it out. And I'm sure you would, uh, I'm sure you would back that up from someone who's sat behind the, uh, the steering wheel, JR. The, the race was dominated by Joseph Newgarden and, and Pato Award, really. Even if they weren't always leading the race, they always felt like they were coming or they were going to be the ones who were going to be there at the end. Obviously, Pato had that stint in the middle of the race where he was able to lap everyone apart from Joseph Newgarden, which was very impressive. And that coincided with, Joseph maybe taking a bit of a uh, an incorrect setup direction where he had a bit of understeer in that middle part of the of the race. So he was two seconds up on Pato, lost that two seconds, and then lost another seven seconds to Pato as he drove off into the distance before a host of cautions, 
muddied the waters at the end of the race there and gave all of the fans a, a spectacular finish to the race until a caution came out right at the end. And that's ultimately what decided the race for, for Joseph Newgard. And I guess in these situations, Joe, we've talked about it lots on the podcast before in similar races. How did you feel about how the race ended? Do you feel like we were we were robbed of that kind of last lap battle between between Pato and Joseph? Are you kind of happy that you know the rules played out as they should do here and that this is one of those things where, you know, we we, we kind of got the the end of the race that we deserved? Yeah, I think that my my general opinion watching these types of races over the years, but again, in this particular situation is I think what actually adds to a lot of the drama over that last 10 lap stint or from 10 to go, let's say, is is that a caution at any point probably ends the race. And so you get really... It, there's there's no there's not a lot of jockeying for position into the last lap you know you're you're not really planning for the final lap basically you're not planning for how you're going to make a pass on the final lap and this is this is back to i mean the last time i can rec- we, we've had you know, you've had a, you've had a texas race here and there over the last 10 years fontana race you know there was there was sort of one fontana race i think 20 16-ish or something that was kind of like this in the arrow kit era where the cars were were loaded up with downforce. But this is really back to we we it's it's worth remembering back to when there was a lot of mile and a halfs on the schedule, kind of the the latter part of the IRL era, um, which was the very beginning of my career. I basically had one year in that car where we ran four or five mile and a halfs that season in 2011. That this was kind of how all of those races were that it wasn't necessarily three or five wide. It wasn't this kind of insane, you know, it was usually you could run too wide. Cars were fast enough. They had just enough grip that that was doable. And probably those first two cars are running laps flat, just kind of jockeying for the the right draft and side draft off the rear quarter and, you know, trying to get the right run at the right distance around the lap or whatever. Um, but rarely were the, when we used to run it, uh, e- even in those days running at Texas, but when we used to run at Kansas and Kentucky and you know, those kinds of places, they looked a lot like this, that even if a third third lane was usable, like even if it, you know, they, we never struggled with PJ one or, or any of these kind of resins or any of that kind of stuff, but usually just because of the nature of the benefit to being low as opposed to high on a track, that's this distance you're running a lot more distance to run up in a third lane. If the cars that are in the first and second lane can run flat out, you're just not going to get anywhere basically running that much extra distance around the lap. So I say all of that sort of to say that what made a lot of those races great also was the fact that you often, oftentimes had two cars side by side for a number of laps in a row. And it was kind of just going to come down to when, a, if, and when a caution fell, uh, that happened a lot. And that's, those are still races that we sort of remember. And I think that that's, to me, a lot of what made this exciting at the end was that all of those guys knew that there was, once you certainly once you got inside of five to go, you're just racing for the win at every moment, basically. You're trying to get to the lead. And there's not, and there's frankly not a lot of value to, tr- there's too many cars running up front, basically, to try to back off to get a run or do any of that kind of stuff. You're just forced almost to pick a lane you know, bottom lane one or lane two and try to start working your tools and doing everything you can to make the best out of that situation in those 
in those circumstances. So I thought that was, I thought it was really cool to watch. Um, it's interesting, I think, to think about the circumstances that were required in order to have that. You know, this was for a long part of this race, this looked like it was going to be Pato and Joseph just completely destroying everybody. You know, if that, if that middle stint had gone longer into the third stint, then what ended up happening doesn't, doesn't go down. Right. And so despite the fact that they've changed the, changed the track and they added down for us with these different bits and pieces and all that kind of stuff, this was, uh, a unique set of circumstances actually that did create for this to happen. Like this is not, this is definitely not a scenario where you can say, Oh, we've solved this problem for Texas and we're going to have great races there from now on with this package. Um, because it, it wasn't that race for a lot of the race. You basically just ended up in a situation at the end where interestingly, because there were so few cars that were on the lead lap, you had a maximum at any time over those last cautions of like, eight cars that were ever on the lead lap, basically eight or nine cars that when you only have that many cars in the lead lap, then it completely takes away the risk or it mostly takes away the risk for those eight cars to pit for tires at any time, basically. And so you ended up with this kind of the perfect storm of enough cars on the lead lap that it was a race, not so many cars in the lead lap that there becomes track position risk to pitting for tires and that every one of those stops, at least one of those lead lap cars stayed out. So you never get a whole gaggle of other cars getting back onto the lead lap. So you basically had all of those cautions through, we'll call it the third stint, right? Like the, just the whole end of the race, the last, you know, 50 or 60 laps or whatever that you had this cycle of at least somebody staying out. So you never invited more cars than were on the lead lap back to the lead lap. And uh, it ended up creating for, and, and so then at that point, the fact that the cars had enough extra downforce compared to years past that enabled these guys to be running flat out, you know, two rows deep side by side, two lanes wide uh, that really you know, it made for what to me ended up being a surprisingly great whole final stanza of of the event after what we had watched prior to that. Yeah, you mentioned all of those circumstances coming together, JR. I guess we should kind of briefly just uh, go back through those for anyone who's kind of tuning in, having watched the, the Texas race, but a bit unsure as to how that kind of whole thing uh, came about there. So we had none of the PJ1 that you mentioned, which is the, I guess, one of the additions that NASCAR has, has tried to improve its racing, but it's been really detrimental to IndyCar. It's made running that high line really difficult in in the past few years. So there was no no extra PJ1. It was a different resin that was laid down um, last November. So that definitely made a difference to the track. It looked visibly less darker, which was which was good. It obviously um obviously did its job in in that sense. So that was the first part of the equation. We also had IndyCar bring in uh, various different aer- aerodynamic parts and it just so turned out that these three parts were basically run by all the teams all weekend as soon as they put them on just because they they were just so clean they didn't you know create dirty air but just added a load of downforce so they were just like the perfect uh, parts to put on so we had the the sidewall the the kind of longer sidewall that goes behind the the rear wheel we had the 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 wicker it's called I guess it's like a, a part that goes in the hole in front of the side pod and then the the barge board wings that were introduced at Indy last year that were underneath the car and all, all three of those parts, it just turned out 
there wasn't really much need for experimentation for the teams. It was just bolt these parts on. It's going to make you faster and everything's going to work out well. So that was a, another good addition from, from IndyCar in that sense that, that that worked out well. We also had the the Highline practice that was kind of trialled last year with, with, I think it was, was it seven or nine cars? It was one of the two. Um, I don't think all of the cars that did that practice really committed to the the idea of it and ran the high high line for the whole practice and and this year we got the whole field running in in a high line and a kind of um off the record unwritten threat that the the drivers needed to take it seriously and and run that high line so we got a really serious uh, approach to that as well so um i guess all of those all of those factors coming together some of them controlled by by indycar and and texas and some of them Maybe a little bit fortunate in a sense the way it, the way it worked out at the weekend, but definitely created a a really interesting race. One of the incidents I kind of wanted to get into, with Jr. Just like from the from a chronological point of view, I guess it was one of the first things that happened in the race was the the Cal Kirkwood and Alexander Rossi uh, crashing in the pits there because I, I guess the two commentators in the booth, Townsend Bell and James Hinchcliffe, kind of immediately jumped on on Kyle for that. And I have to admit, watching it, I I really thought Kyle was to to blame for that incident as well but since you know IndyCar have clarified the the rules that the the driver in the 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 fast lane that they call it the far right lane has precedent over any other driver which includes any you know drivers in in the pit so it's up to it's up to Aaron McLaren to not release Rossi into Kirkwood basically but if you go back and watch the onboard of this happening Rossi's already out of his pit box by the time Kirkwood turns into his box so while the rules may have been followed to the letter of the of the law and correctly in my opinion, this was a really, you know, unfair um, penalty, which has also been changed after the race by IndyCar it's from a, an unsafe release to a, a unavoidable contact. I think is the the the, the rule that they've gone with. Uh, so to, to reassess a penalty after a race is just a bit odd, anyway. Um, but yeah, I think maybe this is something that he's looking at because while it's not Kyle's fault because he's kind of following the the rules, it's also not really Alexander or McLaren's fault in in that sense either and i just think in these pit stops the the person who is ultimately responsible for releasing rossi has to identify the car that is on the outside lane work out who it is to start with who is that driver then know where they are in the pits in terms of where their pit box is have have they pitted yet or have they not are they a threat or not um and then decide whether to release your driver and you've got to do all of that in the space of you know less than a second so uh, I just I think that's something that probably will be and does need to be you know looked at in the future. How can we avoid a, a similar scenario like that because someone's been penalised there for something that probably wasn't probably wasn't their fault? Yeah, I think that there's a couple of things that are going on here that just are I guess um, maybe idiosyncratic components of this whole thing. One is I tended to agree with Hinch's point of view on this whole thing when he was describing it because. Because of a lot of what you're talking about, which is like, how is the guy sending Rossi supposed to know? Like, it's not it's not really in his purview to know that he's just supposed to be looking for cars that he thinks that his guy is going to run into. And so you're looking at the you're looking for cars that are currently slowing down or diving into their pit box, which to your point, you can see from kind of the synced onboards and all that kind of stuff that. Kirkwood had not yet even made the turn into, maybe he had started to slow down, but he certainly had not made the turn into his pit box. And I would say that from a driver's perspective, you do typically, you're sort of taught in these situations to not start slowing down 
or bend or really bending into your pit box until you've at least started to peel out of move from the fast lane to the transition lane. So move from the, the lane that's furthest to the right on the outside to the lane that's sort of in the middle transitioning into the pit boxes. And so, I mean, at Indy, you think Indy is an even tighter pit lane than, uh, than Texas is, you know, that's just, that's just kind of the common, you know, the car, if you're, if you're in line coming into the pits, the car in front of you usually is out of your way before it starts to slow down. Then you're kind of making this movement to slow down and then bending in from the transition lane into your pit box. The only thing that I would say that is a little caveat or or kind of a little wrinkle in this particular situation for Kirkwood is that there were a lot of cars coming into the transition lane that had pitted already that are kind of a threat to occupy the transition lane. And so I think I'm guessing that that was a part of his mindset for not going to the transition lane sooner was basically just there's a lot of cars coming out of the pits that he's going to sort of end up getting past if he stays in the fast lane. If he's in the transition lane, he's just at a higher risk of having to stop or slow down or be in somebody's way or whatever. Ultimately, I think this just needs to be looked at overall to kind of establish what, so if you're penalizing Rossi and his guys, that's setting, I think, a weird precedent going forward for the teams having to be, as you said, and 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 laid out very clearly, like, so the teams are supposed to know exactly who's coming into the pits and where those pits are and, and all that kind of stuff. That uh, That up until this point has been way outside the purview of what a right front tire changer you know crew chief oftentimes is tasked with looking for or being aware of it's one and it's also it's one thing when you're at indianapolis and you're you've got days worth of practice where it's the same cars that are all around you i mean for for an event like this that's just not not really how it is you know you're not you're not getting that sight picture you're not looking for those cars over the course of over the course of the event, so I, I mean, I think an easier adjustment here to make would be really drive home that you need to be in the transition lane before you turn into your pit box, and that you know put that kind of fault on the driver because the the driver as you're coming down the pit lane, you're the one that's looking ahead and can see all of the cars that are that are up there. So I, I don't know. I mean, there's there's some elements like if you made that the hard rule there are some elements of that that become a little bit tricky if you're you know I, i'm not i'm not 100 percent sure that i feel that i'd feel good about saying the right of way is then in some sense to the cars that are exiting their pit boxes but i think you at least you we, we at least need to enforce that the drivers that are coming into their boxes are sort of signaling that in advance so that at least the teams that are a couple of pit boxes around them for sure do know that that's that car and they can expect that they need to hold their guy for a second. So I guess I, I, I generally feel like the, the penalty was harsh on it, it. It, it didn't end up making any difference, but I felt like Kirkwood was kind of, if there was somebody that was really in the wrong, certainly from a driving perspective in terms of like avoidable contact, it was Kirkwood for not being in the transition lane. Like that's that, that's the, that's the easy solution to this is if Kirkwood's in the transition lane, this probably doesn't happen. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, Jay, just to finish on the the Kirkwood-Rossi incident as well, I think yeah, I might get jumped on a little bit for this, but I, I find it difficult not to have preference with the the person who's in the top five fighting f- at the front of the race to like the the only thought in Rossi's mind or any of his team there is to stay in the top five and, you know, stay on course to, to try and win the race. Like that, that is the position he's in. And Kirkwood is obviously not in that position, given the fact that he's entering his pit box as Rossi's leaving his. So while I don't want to see someone like Kirkwood have to slow down there and potentially give up a lap or, or lose ground themselves, I think that unless there's a a significant element of incompetence or error in the release of the driver coming from the pit box, then the person in the top five has to have some sort of understanding that he is getting preference in the pit lane there because he is a driver who is fighting for for, for the lead of the race, basically. I I think uh, maybe a slightly different riff on that, but in the same, in the same general, you know, sort of with the same general point of view is basically just, I mean, I can tell you from experience, I've been in races where you're among those guys that are pitting first and you're kind of in the gaggle of cars that's going to be exiting the pit lane, exiting your box while there's cars that are maybe coming in. And I've certainly been on the other side of that in these kind of situations also. When you are further back, I guess I think generally, maybe this is just something that comes with a little bit of experience that you do tend to just respect the little bit of etiquette there, which is, okay, look, like, I I do it is kind of my job to it's not it's not your job it's not your responsibility but I don't know I I've I have always felt in the car if I'm not really a real dog in the fight I'm going to take a I'm going to I'm going to shave a little off of what I my maximum in those exchanges to make sure that I'm not responsible for getting in the way of those guys or screwing up their races you know it's kind of you know, we've had this conversation about, you know, etiquette with like lapped cars or cars that are about to go a lap down at the end of races. 
And it's kind of like, I feel like there was a time when if, if Will Power is ever, if Scott Dixon is ever in that situation, he just pulls over and lets guys go by. Like, you know, and so if that's what those guys do in, in these, if they're, if, if the, if the veterans in the field typically are guys that are going to give a little to just kind of stay out of everybody's way or to make sure that they're not accidentally or, or in some borderline way responsible for screwing up somebody else's race when they're, when they are genuinely like battling at the front of the field. Um, then I think that it's, I think it's fair to, feel like that should sort of be how everybody everybody should migrate towards operating in that same way and that and that we'd probably just have fewer of these incidents and it doesn't really you know when you're running 15th or 18th or whatever it just doesn't change your race that much to give up a spot here and there like the difference between coming out of the pits in fourth versus seventh does change your race the difference between coming out of the pits in 14th versus 17th just kind of doesn't so i'm i'm with you so I mean, you know, obviously we've got those two guys running up front. Pato was just totally in control of this race for a long period of time, and we know, we know, we kind of heard afterwards, and and you could see it. I, I guess I was not, I was not totally clear that they had made an adjustment to New Garden that made made for a change, but you could certainly see that he lost pace relative to Pato. So whether it was Sometimes that can be track condition changing just enough that it suits one car versus another, one setup versus another. I felt like Pato definitely watching him throughout the race. He he just always looked as he's looked here in the past. A, the car just looked more positive in general, and we know that he's a guy from the, from when he won this race. I guess a couple of years ago, um, we talked. I remember talking about it on the pod that it just felt like. You needed to, in that in that race in particular. It was a lower down force event. It was more like kind of how the middle of this race was, just all the way through the end of the race. There was not that many cars in the lead lap. He kind of ran away with it towards the end. That you ne- really needed the car to be able to be positive to exit the corner to get the runoff. He seemed like maybe at that point in time he was just one of the only guys that was really willing to commit to the car being driven in that way, kind of at the limit of you know, what the rear was going to give you. And he just sort of drove through it. He's certainly a guy that's expressed a high tolerance for, for doing that over the years. Um, ultimately they, they sort of reconciled new gardens setup, And then we were on new tires more frequently at the end of the race. So that just takes away a little bit of whatever edge was going to exist for anybody over the course of a long stint. He ends up coming in second, a race that he certainly, I'm sure he felt in control of at points Coming off of St. Pete, where I'm sure he felt the same way, had something that was totally out of his control, plenum fire, uh, take the, you know, I, I think reasonably take the win away. I don't think Marcus was going to get by him had that not happened. Um, what do you think is his mindset at this point? How, you were there, so you maybe got a sense of it in person. Um, I, I think I, I know how I'd be feeling a few days later now, but what do you, what do you get from, Pato's vibe and and where he's at. He's the points leader, so he's got that going for him. But I mean, at this point, he's probably sitting there like he could be the points leader by a by a much heftier margin had some things just fallen his way, no fault of his own. Yeah, I managed to grab him after the race, and we uh, avoided uh, a ton of uh, Mexican fans who were trying to get selfies with him, and almost got run over by a by his car, funnily enough, that was waiting to go through uh, tech as well, which is quite entertaining. Um, so that that was a fun interview. But yeah, I guess 
it's a really interesting situation for the reasons that you mentioned that he's basically had two wins kind of if not taken away from him then he he definitely had reason to believe that he was going to win those two races at, at one point so um most drivers would treat that with a level of negativity and upset for for obvious reasons that as you mentioned uh, you know quite a few points have have gone there you know we could be looking at a driver who has won the first two races of the season and is you know quite a way ahead in the points already so it's definitely a definitely an interesting scenario but I think Pato's maybe coming at it from a totally different perspective of we've not always had the best starts to to a season and certainly in the context of last season where behind the scenes at this point there was major disagreement over whether he was even going to race with the team into the future without, without that new contract coming and um, you know be- believing in himself that he deserved a certain level of contract and that he deserved to be you know one of the top drivers in the in the series and struggling to to get that over the line and to to get that vindication, I guess that that he was in in that class of of driver. And I think he's proven that now by you only have to look at the end of the year who's you know fighting for the championship and you know he's almost always there or thereabouts. And if he isn't, there's usually good reasons for it that aren't you know to do with him. So I think there's a definitely a feeling of uh, discontent that the races haven't gone his way, but also a feeling of internal jubilation that even with this you know kind of negativity surrounding the the two races that he's leading the championship and has began a year in a way that he feels he can and deserves to you know start at at some point having had some difficulty in the past where he's been trying to get his uh, you know championship bids off the ground early on so really really interested talking to him because we know he's kind of an upbeat guy anyway he's you know never wants to shy away from a joke he's really outgoing on on social media for for people who follow him there and get to see a, that that kind of uh, i guess an insight into his life that we maybe don't get with other other drivers because he's so outgoing and willing to share that you know aspect of his of his life with his fans um but you definitely can't mistake that for a lack of determination and sincerity in how he goes about his his business and i think we've seen that with his oval form is, you know, absolutely spectacular now coming into the series. And he's he's he never watched oval racing growing up or had a particular, you know, affinity for it before he came into the series. And and even in junior formula, he wasn't he, he didn't do that many oval races in in the junior formula before he came into IndyCar. So he he's taken this this challenge of learning something totally new um, as as a kind of personal one, one that he wants to conquer and be- believes that he can. So. Um, yeah, really interesting uh, kind of situation we're finding ourselves in here with Pato having so much go against him, but so much go for him at the same time. Yeah, I think the only thing that I would add is just from a from a driver's mindset, one of the th- you know the the things not going exactly your way is something that's frustrating when it's happening. But these types of races, certainly Texas, but even looking back at looking back at St. Pete. It was not accidental that Pato was in a position to win both of those races, and I think particularly an event like an event like Texas, where I mean he ended up coming in second. It wasn't like he, you know, got taken out or ended up you know finishing way at the back somewhere. He had an entire stint of the race where he was just absolutely putting a beat down on literally everybody every other car he laps lapping scott dixon lap you know these are this is not it's not like 
whatever. This is not circumstantial somehow that this is that this is going on. That that feeling is usually the thing that actually hangs with you the longest from those types of situations. Like remembering that you were that good at that race for a long period of time. And a, a guy like Pato has he's he has shown along with a lot of the other. We talk about this with a lot of the guys that are up at the front of the field that they're able to put the they're able to put the things that really weren't in their control or kind of didn't quite go their way or or whatever out of sight out of mind pretty quickly and so i think ultimately pato how whatever his demeanor might have been post race or or whatever at either of these events the thing that he's these are just serving to build more confidence in him that as long as he just does his thing that this weird stuff is going to happen. It's going to happen less frequently on average than it has to start this season. And, and you could, you know, he could look at the second half of last season and basically say the same thing. You know, I still think about mid Ohio and, you know, there's some events that were just like, yeah, I just got totally stripped of a race where, and in those cases it was, it was like a major points deficit, you know, at least here he's finishing second in both of these scenarios. So yeah, I, I think Pato is definitely showing that he's one to be reckoned with. And if I'm him, I'm feeling ultra confident going into the next round of races, going into Indy, especially after the year that they had last year. If they can just find a little bit, if Chevy can just find a little bit, you know, they're they're not that far away. So, um, you know, he'll be he, he'll be he's he's definitely sticking his flag in the ground here at the beginning of the year to show that they're they are very legitimate title contenders for the rest of the season. Yeah, he's had 16 oval starts in IndyCar now and his average finish is 4.69. So that just kind of speaks that for itself. That is a crazy stat. It's, it's, yeah. it's almost beyond belief, isn't it? It's pretty spectacular. So we'll definitely be keeping an eye on him as we get to, towards the month of May and whether Chevrolet can, can make that step forward that they were maybe lacking slightly last year in their pursuit of Ganassi. So that'll definitely be a storyline we'll be watching for the first part of the year here. I don't want to leave the topic of the the kind of fight for the win without addressing Joseph and this is the the second win at Texas in a row and the second win at Texas in a row with a new engineer so Luke Mason on board and, and getting his first win with with Joseph I think he was asked about this in the in the post-race press conference and he he's just he's thrilled even more so than than last year for sure at, at the group of people that he has around him this year and I think there's a genuine there's a genuine difference this year in the sense that he just seems that bit more comfortable in the people around him and not just necessarily the people around him. I think there's always an element of, you know, belief on Joseph's side that he's got the right people around him. You know, he, he drives a, he drives a team Penske and, you know, no one gets the position to be working on Joseph Newgarden's car if they don't, you know, deserve to be there in, in some way, shape or form. But I think last year there was definitely, a f- uh, from the outside at least, a feeling that, there was a lot of people there who were, were either making their debut on Joseph's car or or in IndyCar itself and maybe weren't ready to match, you know, what Joseph brings to the table. And that's obviously um, experience and a lot of success um, over a long period of time. So you can't always expect people to come in and just perform at Joseph's level because, you know, that, that takes away from the level that Joseph's at. But I think what we're seeing this year to to start the season, even though they had the, the issue in St. Pete with the, the engine fighter, that Joseph just has total belief that this team's ready to to go on a tear this year and do something cool. So um, that was quite a scary 
um, proposition in the in the press conference listening to listening to Joseph talk that way. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I think that it, I, I mean, I can say obviously Joseph and I are buddies. Like we, we I was actually texting with him, just asking a few questions uh, after Saturday, uh, just to kind of get a feel for what how, where his was at, where his where his head was at after the practice sessions and and all that kind of stuff. He he anticipated an event that was probably more like the end of the race actually ended up being then. I mean, he definitely, he was confident that that second lane was going to work and it was going to work in one and two and three and four. And the cars definitely had more down for us. As long as it wasn't super hot, that those things were all going to, so he was, they were definitely ready for ready for what they were going to be up against um, or what they, what they ended up experiencing the following day. But yeah, you definitely just get a sense that he's, you know, different drivers, the, the relationship between driver and engineer, even if, it's not the person who's on your radio. You know, we talked last year about, um, you know, Pato and Taylor Kyle and, you know, some of those types of relationships, like who do you have in your ear coming from the timing stand? But the other part of it is your relationship between yourself and as the driver and your engineer. And that is, in my experience, at least like that is ultimately the thing that dictates a lot of the vibe within a team. And even, even if it's not the voice that you're hearing during the race and, and, and in some situations it is right. Like sometimes the engineer is the one that's talking to you or, or it's some combination of those things. But, um, and it just feels to me like Joseph, you know, is a little bit more, I think last year with, with Eric coming from Pratt and Miller and that whole thing, it was, they like needed to find a solution and it was quick as well. Yeah, it was just they they needed to find like a pretty quick solution and they so they went hunting for talent and Luke was on this squad last year. He, I think he was the the performance engineer yep. last year, but but he was kind of new to the two crew or maybe hadn't had, you know, maybe the team didn't feel like he quite had the experience or whatever whatever the reasons for it was. Um that wasn't really, you know, in the cards. And so you know, it just felt like I think, and again, from the outside, I don't have a lot of insight into exactly how the whole thing went down, but it just had the appearance of being like, this is kind of like a forced hand in terms of what we're going to do right now. And, and, and just from that perspective, it's immediately not ideal. Right. And so in this scenario, you know, Joseph is working with a guy that's been on his timing stand that he feels really good about. And sometimes just personalities, work, you work better with somebody else. And sometimes that's, you know, in, in, in this case, I kind of get the feeling that Joseph and Luke are, are kind of similar in terms of their personalities and energy levels and, and those kinds of things. Some drivers do better with somebody who brings something to the table. that's totally different than what they bring to the table. So it's not, it's not necessarily to say that, you know, the best driver engineer combinations are guys that like would be friends away from the track or something, but you do have to, you do have to build something with that person that just gives you, you know, lets you be at the right number on the rev limiter when it counts, when you get in the car. And, uh, and it just, it just sort of feels like Joseph's got that, got that in a way with Luke, you know, he's, he just, his tone, like the way that they sort of seem together, some of the body language that you see, it seems much more similar to way that he was like when he was with Gavin Ward and, um, that they are just able to kind of create create an energy between the two of them that that meshes and vibes and isn't you know isn't creating distraction is you know you're not having to like walk on eggshells you're not having to do these things um, 
you know, and, and part of that is that he's just not brand new to to Joseph and the two crew as well. So I I I guess I agree with you from from the little bits and pieces that I kind of see just knowing Joseph, it definitely feels like he's he's feeling like they're in a they're in a better place for whatever reason that might be. And 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 again, like it might just have nothing to do with it might have nothing to do with skill or performance level or you know background or or knowledge or whatever. It's just you know, sometimes there's kind of a human component to the whole thing that that does matter. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the Commuter Collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The Commuter Collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. All right, JR, we're running out of time slightly towards the end of the pod, but I do want to run through some significant results uh, through through the Texas field. Uh, basically, good at, good and bad, unfortunately, I suppose for for the bad ones. But uh, I guess we'll start with 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 the media, the good and the bad, Roman Grosjean, because he was running up front, you know, all day long there. I think I don't think anyone would disagree that that was his best oval race of of his short IndyCar oval racing career so far. Definitely felt like um, he and his team have, have found something, and again, it's that it's that understeer thing. It's the same problem that they've had on the the road and street courses that they've been having on the ovals as well. And they they found something at Iowa that that Roman seems to like last year, and it seems to have worked at Texas as well, and and kind of brought his car alive a little bit in the race. So he was happy with that. Um, I spoke to him this morning while he was cleaning his plane, mm. so that was good fun. I could hear the spritzing of his of his spray while he was cleaning the keel in the background as I was asking him serious questions about about IndyCar. So that was good fun. Um, he was definitely upset at the life must not be too bad. Yeah, I know. For, I know. But he <laughs> but he he had forgot the keys for the inside of the plane, so he was gonna have to go home and pick those up before he could clean the interior of the of the plane. So you know, I did feel sorry for him at that point. Uh, I was ready to bring the violin out but he he, he, he made it, possible yeah, violin <laughs> yeah but he 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 made good, he he made some good humor out of it so we'll we'll let him off for that one yeah i think um he was pretty unlucky at the end of the race there i thought um you know obviously anyone who's who's crashing out in that scenario has to take a, an element of responsibility but he was certainly unfortunate in the sense that he, that was tight close racing it was difficult to 
to judge the fact you were going to lose the air off the front of the car there and that, and that that was going to happen. I think, you know, maybe a more experienced oval racer at Texas sees that coming and, and backs out. Even, you know, Roman says he backs out. He, he did back out entering the corner because he was expecting, you know, something similar to happen. And, and you know, maybe uh, maybe a, even a veteran wouldn't have gotten out of that situation. It's a it's a difficult one to, to, to kind of bounce back and forth but he's definitely feeling a lot more confident about confident about ovals now and uh, going into the 500 he's a little bit more excited about the the prospect of that than than he might have been before texas and, and his performance there so so that was one i definitely wanted to pick out uh, there was a, a couple more as well i think definitely worth mentioning hungos hollinger racing with uh callum Eilot, who's who had two top tens in the whole of 2022 and has opened the 2023 season with two top tens with a a ninth and his fifth at St. Pete, both of them qualifying well down the order. I think he was 17th and qualifying at, at Texas and he was 22nd at, at uh, St. Pete. And I think that's an area where Callum has accepted and, and the team has accepted that qualifying is not necessarily going to be their, their strong suit this year, but they're going to, you know, come on a bit strong in races. And I guess in Canapino, we spoke to his engineer, Charlie Ping on the show last week, unfortunately without you, JR, but we'll definitely get him back on for you to grill him about all matters tech when it comes to, to IndyCar. But he was talking about getting Agustin Canapino ready for, for his oval debut. And he was uh, dizzy and almost unable to stand up once he'd got out of the car, which is probably not a surprise to you, JL, but maybe a surprise to some of the listeners at home who aren't maybe familiar with what it feels like to, to do your first race at Texas and be put in a washing machine at 220 miles an hour, basically, is kind of what happens. So... Uh, I felt very sorry for him as I sat on the pit wall with him and he was kind of just holding himself up on the on the pit wall like, with it, like almost as if he was doing some sort of like uh, some sort of dip or something on the on the pit We've wall. We've all been there, buddy. Yeah, yeah. I felt very sorry for him. But um, yeah, he said he'd, he'd never felt anything like that in his life before. But uh, yeah, two 12th place finishes start the year and we've had 27 cars in the first race and, and 28 cars in the second race. Uh, I'm sure... Well, I don't think anyone would have predicted that at the start of the season and he's definitely proven himself to be every bit the champion that he showed he was in in Argentina. David Belucas as well, shout out to him. He's actually ahead of Callum Eilat in the points. Had another strong race there. I think um, I think he probably didn't have anything for for Joseph and Pato, if we're being honest, at, at the end of the race. But I think, you know, his, he, he deserved to be in the top five. He did a good job to be there and he's proven himself uh, on, on ovals as well. Um, that he's definitely got something there and that he's developing very, very nicely with Dale Coyne. Seems to have added a level of consistency that, that team doesn't really seem to get as well. You know, we, we know Coyne as that team who's, you know, it's capable of scoring wild results on its day, but struggles for that consistent element of being able to do that week in, week out. Whereas, you know, David, you know, maybe hasn't had that win yet or or that pole or or maybe that, you know, that kind of your name in bright shining lights above the, above the movie theatre moment. But he's definitely... Um, you know, he's definitely proven himself a, a future IndyCar star, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think it's also worth just noting that last year he had a veteran in Takuma Sato alongside him for the entire year. This year, he just doesn't. I mean, he's he's the veteran of these two guys kind of leading the charge. So, you know, without a technical relationship with another team, without any of those things, you know, I mean, for him to for him to be notching top five results anywhere, anywhere in any set of conditions is in my mind, super impressive and and definitely deserving of a shout out. Yeah, it feels like he doesn't really get the credit he deserves. He's not really talked about as much as maybe, you know, people should. And and maybe that's because he hasn't necessarily had those 
um, standout performances or because he doesn't come from Formula One or <laughs> any of any of those reasons, basically. But uh, I know for a fact that he's very highly admired by a lot of the team bosses in the paddock and, and people inside the paddock are definitely paying a lot of attention to to David Malukas. Uh, I guess we should also mention Rahul Letterman-Lanigan, who were 18th and 19th with Jack Harvey and Christine Lungard. Just seems like a bit of a mess over there at the minute, to be honest. Um, it's it's really sad to see. Obviously, we had this you know big reset in the off-season with a load of um, you know new engineers coming in. Um, you know Bobby Rahul, obviously, back in the team with with added people and and trying to to give the team more resource. And it's definitely not paid off to to start the season they really struggled through you know practice and qualifying at, at St. Pete and you know I think it was some really wise racecraft in a very uh, attrition filled race at St. Pete that was a typical Graham Ray Hall performance wasn't it really he was cool calm confident and, and quick when others around him were were faltering and, and not able to to match that and Christian Lungard seems, has that, seems to have that same kind of ability to do the similar kind of thing he's one of these people who's just wherever he qualifies in a you know I don't want to say in a Dixon like manner because that's that is the you're reserving that praise for the the very highest honour but you, do, you know both of those guys Graham Hall and Christian Lungard seem to be able to qualify low down and still you know produce top tens and, and big results but um, yeah they've definitely struggled to start the year and Graham unfortunately taken out in a bit of a an incident that wasn't his fault really with, with Devlin Di Francesco but I still don't know if the if they were going to be able to crack the top 15 at the end of the race or if that was going to be, you know, possible. It, it, they just struggled with so much understeer. You could just see, like, watching the qualifying laps, you know, Jack Harvey especially, like, such big lifts in the corners and just really, really struggling. So, yeah, I think we'll be um, we'll be hoping that they're able to turn it around and, and Long Beach at least might, you know, be a good opportunity given that they've had St. Pete. They've had a street course race under their belt. Um, but still, I think there's a lot of work to do there this season for that team. Yeah, I think Graham's hurting for there being somebody else on the team that that he can lean on to establish some. He, I mean, not not that he doesn't know what he needs to look for at these kinds of places, but in this type of situation, having somebody else there who can you can bounce things off of and and kind of just know that when you're trying something, you can trust the feedback outside of just you know it's it's one thing when you you know, jam a setup on Christian's car, Jack's car, and they just immediately go way faster. That's, that's easy to know that that's, you know, you're heading in the right direction, but sometimes it's not that it's, it takes like five or six changes to kind of get to the point that that's where you're at. And on these ovals, if you're not confident and comfortable in the car of these three guys, Graham is certainly the one that can just put up with that probably and, and deal with it. Cause he's driven, enough miles at these kinds of places in cars that just for everybody were not that confidence inspiring. So he's, he's got that bit of experience under his belt to your point. It seems like Christian has a bit of that. Just, okay, I can just sit here and grind this out like a little, a little under the limit, but I can, I can be kind of right up against where the limit is. I keep the car right there for a lot of the lap. Um, You know, Jack still seems like he's just kind of having a hard time finding the feeling that he's looking for in the car and that after not having that for quite a while now, it seems like, you know, more or less his sort of tenure at tenure at Ray Hall. Um, also coming back to a track that he had a big accident last year, that doesn't help. So it's, I never, I never kind of question how much of a factor guy's confidence is or something like, I think all of these guys are, 
are capable of being extremely confident drivers and assertive and, and knowing what they're looking for. And it's not like, it's not like you're chasing a ghost, but, um, you know, there's, there's no question that in order to really get back to operating at a high level, sometimes you, you just need for things to sort of be right. So you can refamiliarize yourself with what that feels like. And without that now on, on an oval, for these guys that really that's tough i mean that's you know, for looking ahead to indy you know they've got to write that part of the ship here in a hurry you know like almost i think almost treat it like you're starting from scratch and do whatever you got to do to establish a confidence in the car and a confidence in the feeling of the rear of the car and if that means you're dealing with understeer for the first couple of days at the speedway or whatever like so be it um, but at least, you know, at least get things back to a, back to a baseline where you, where you, where everybody agrees on what's going on at least, because, you know, as, as Graham said in his interview, um, after being, after getting taken out or whatever, being in that crash, you can tell that where he finished or where he was running was totally unimportant to him at that point. He was just sort of baffled by the performance that they had over the course of that weekend and they, and that they couldn't really get it figured out. So, um, definitely something to look for as we head into the the month of May as the next big oval. If you are a Ray Hall, Esmond Lanigan fan currently punching your iPod or something at the level of criticism that you're listening to here, I guess you can take solace in the fact that they had that test at Sebring last year, sort of just after halfway through the year, I think that was where, they were able to find some things and, and did exactly what you just suggested really was went back to basics. They threw on some dampers from like 2008 or nine or something to get a read <laughs> on like where they'd come from and where they'd ended up and how that had happened and really just gone, you know, right back to basics to try and to try and find that problem. So what you've just suggested, JR, is, you know, they've got prior for that very recently and it's it's you know, put them in good stead. So while it's very rare for one test to change a whole team's IndyCar season, it does occasionally happen. And we we know Ray Hall can be really good at 500. So I'm sure that'll be their immediate focus uh, heading into that. We'll wrap Texas up there, JR. It was uh, definitely a barnstorming race. It was lovely to go there and, and see Texas for the first time. I really enjoyed it. I'm sad that you weren't able to race there, but I'm sure we'll see you back in an IndyCar at some point in the near future. Near can be defined by, well, you. You can define near and tell us when <laughs> when near is. But the the fans. It's like, do you know something I don't know? Cliffhanger man? there, <laughs> left on a cliffhanger there as to when the near future is going to be. But we're all hoping that it's going to be soon. Well, me too, Jack. I appreciate that. <laughs> Make sure you check out the hyphenrace.com for all your latest news, features, and reports from Texas in IndyCar and for all of the other championships that you cover like MotoGP, Formula 1 and Formula E for example definitely worth checking all of those series out but especially IndyCar because I write about IndyCar and I'm the best so you should go and check it out. That's all for this week's episode of the Race IndyCar Podcast and we'll be back soon before Long Beach to preview that one. We'll see you then. The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, 
has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.